Amen. Thanks, Shane. Who is God? What is God like? What do you think of when you think of God? This, this was a conversation we had a couple weeks ago. It was actually fun to have a conversation instead of just me talking that day. I like that. We're going to have to do that again. But anyway, we, we had this conversation by way of introduction to the series that we're starting today that's going to run for quite a while. If God is real, if God is real, and if he did make us in his image, it probably makes sense to discover what that image is. For as the French philosopher Voltaire very famously reflected in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. Man loves to worship himself, but does so with the semblance of dignity, right? We claim to still worship God, even though that God is just an image of ourselves. So I think the only way to free ourselves to pure worship and further to understand the image that God is trying to remake us into is probably to understand that image in the first place, right? And this is exactly why Jesus told this most amazing of parables. A parable, maybe one of the first Bible stories many of us remember if we were brought up in a church setting. And if we're even new to Christianity, probably a parable we've often heard. It's very popular. He told this story to reveal to us the image of God. He told all his parables to reveal to us the image of God. He, at some level, was a parable, revealing the image of God to us. See, he came to this earth at a time and place when the world was full of ideas about God, very treasured ideas of who God was. And Jesus shows up and he says, well, actually, that's not what God is like at all. This is what God is like, which is what ended up getting him crucified, right? Because they held on to these ideas so tightly. And Jesus shows up and says, it's entirely different than you think. And they weren't, didn't take well to that. So what we're going to do as part of our exploration of Galatians, we're in the middle of Galatians as, um, that we've been looking at Galatians for a few months now. And what we're going to do is dive deeply into this parable, deeply, like 10 or 11 weeks worth of deep into this parable. So I've been encouraging everyone, try, try, try to be engaged in series. It's a really great series. And even if you can't be here every day, Kevin's going to do his best to get, get it all recorded and, and maybe you can engage it on your own time. For those that this is new, I promise you will discover things, we will discover things together that are life-changing or can be life-changing if we want them to be. And I know we did this before about six years ago, but there will be new things we'll look at and those of us who were part of it six years ago, I hope we rediscover some of those things that have been lost over time. Hopefully you remember the major arc of the story, but the details, I mean the details of, of sermons get lost pretty quickly in the busyness of life. So that's why we're going to be looking at this again. I think all of us, if we're here, are at some level trying to seek to worship God more purely and also to figure out what is it? What is it that we are to be in this world? Well, we're to be like him. Well, what is he like? So Jesus starts his story with an attention-grabbing scene. For his audience at the time, as soon as he said these words, they would just their ears would have perked up because they would have been, wow. Did that just happen? Now, the younger son asked for his share of the property, okay? Even as far removed as we are in 21st century America, we, we can sense this probably isn't that cool of a thing to do, right? Now, so the father, because the father's obviously healthy, 
He is still managing the affairs of his state. Later in the story, we're going to see him running. Okay, so this is not a deathbed scene. This is not the younger son coming to the deathbed and making sure he gets his share of the estate before the lawyers and in-laws get involved. Okay, that's not what this scene is. But interestingly enough, it might as well be a deathbed scene. The Middle Eastern scholar Kenneth Bailey that I use a lot, he says in Middle Eastern culture to ask for the inheritance while the father is still alive is to wish him dead. This is why as soon as Jesus said this, the audience would have been like, oh, here's a fascinating story that he's about to tell, and we know all about this young kid. He's horrible, okay? But here's what's interesting. There are no specific laws concerning this, okay? So the son didn't break any law, and yet the father still identifies him clearly later in the parable as lost. So why was he lost? Or in Christian language, what was his sin? So Bailey again writes, the son has not broken the law, rather he has broken his father's heart. Relationship. This son had no interest in meeting the demands of relationship. He violated the relationship he had with his father. And so I want to talk, stop here and make a side note, a side note that I've often made through the years at Cana, but this is really important to keep in the front of our minds, in our lives, as well as as we enter into this story. What does righteousness mean in the context of biblical narrative? This is so important. What does righteousness mean according to Scripture, not according to Christians, according to Scripture? Well, here's a Hebrew scholar. Uh, my printer went fuzzy here, so sorry, I have to turn around. Righteousness, as it is understood in the Old Testament, is a thoroughly Hebraic concept, foreign to the Western mind, and at variance with the common understanding of the term. The failure to comprehend its meaning is perhaps most responsible for the view of Old Testament religion as legalistic. This is big. In, in my own life, it was my complete misunderstanding of righteousness that led me into legalistic Christianity. And, it, and when you listen to people that are, that are in it, you listen to their answers, and that's what's happening. This complete failure to comprehend its meaning. In the Old Testament, it is not behavior in accordance with an ethical, legal, psychological, religious, or spiritual norm. It is not conduct which is dictated by either divine or human nature, no matter how undefiled. Rather, righteousness is, in the Old Testament, the fulfillment of the demands of a relationship, whether that relationship be with men or God. And uh, Gerhard von Rad gives even more insight into the understanding of righteousness in Scripture. There is absolutely no concept in the Old Testament with so central a significance for all the relationship of human life as that of righteousness. It is the standard for not only man's relationship to God, but also for his relationships to his fellows. It is even the standard for man's relationship to the animals and to his natural environment. It's powerful to understand and grasp this, what righteousness really is in the eyes of God. And this is why Tamar, 
in Scripture is called righteous after seducing and sleeping with her father-in-law. Try to convince a legalistic mindset of that. Try to even convince yourself of that. And New Testament righteousness cannot be divorced from Old Testament righteousness. Righteousness in Scripture is not about following a code of ethics or even being a good Christian or obeying all the rules in an, in, in, in an end in and of themselves. It's instead about the love others part of the commandments. That's why Jesus said, love others and you will fulfill the law. Okay. So, back to our story. That's a side note that we have to have. So, back to our story. So, the son stopped loving his father. Now, what we need to do here is that what we're going to do today is explore exactly how intense this violation of relationship was. For if we don't grasp what the son has done, we're never going to grasp what the father does in this story. And that's why it's so important. That's why we take so long to go through this story because a lot of the story, it just, when it's put together too quickly, it, it just, the whole thing is missed. Which is why it was ever called the prodigal son in the first place. It never should have been called the prodigal son. It's really not about the prodigal son at all. It's about this amazingly loving, graceful father is what the story should have been told, should have been called. But anyway, so back, back to where I'm at. If we don't grasp what this son has done, we're never going to grasp what the father does as we get into the story. And grasping that is sort of vital. For as I said, the parable is all about the revelation of who God is in contrast to who we think he is. And our response to God is the whole point, to love him and to be like him. So notice the language. The son does not ask for his inheritance. This is important. The son does not ask for his inheritance. Inheritance is this word, and it's used about 14 times in the New Testament. But the word that is used here is this word, and it's only used here and nowhere else in the story. And it means wealth and property. This is important, and I'm going to let Bailey explain it because he does a better job than I could. To accept one's inheritance involves acceptance of leadership responsibility in the family clan. The recipient is duty-bound to administer property and help solve family quarrels. He must defend the honor of the family against all comers, even with his life if necessary. He pledges himself to increase the clan's wealth and represent them nobly at village functions. He must build the house of his father. But this is specifically what the younger son does not want and does not ask for. He wants the money. He did not want or ask for his inheritance with the responsibility involved. So you're starting to get an idea why the audience at that time would be like, whoa. And why, as Jesus gets into the story and what really happens to this younger kid, this is why Jesus ends up getting killed all the time. It's all these stories that just do not make any sense to humanity. So, there it is. Now, furthermore, think about this. In this time and place, the family wealth was not held in liquid assets. This guy didn't liquidate his 401k to give his youngest son his share of the estate. And he didn't sell off some stocks. And he didn't go to his, uh, what do they call it? Safety deposit box and get cash. Okay? In verse 13, where it says, this gathered all, this gathered all, everything together, that basically means turned everything into cash. Bailey suggests that by requesting his share of the estate, he would have received it in land, hard assets, livestock, etc. Imagine the loss to this family in both real terms and in long-term security. 
because this son wanted his share. Snodgrass points out these resources were the father's means of maintaining his life, especially in old age. Because in the, in the very original language, this is what it is. Divided his property, basically the original language is divided his life. The father divided his life up at this request. This was an incredibly selfish and ungrateful act by the son. This isn't, you know, the American teenager demanding, you know, the use of the car. <laughs> this is an unbelievably selfish act that this son has done. The son truly wants the father dead. And more, he wants nothing to do with the entire family. He doesn't care about the entire family and what, what this request might do to the family. It's a total violation of the demands of relationship. An Egyptian Protestant scholar, Ibrahim Said, writes this about this. This request means the younger son considered it a misfortune to live under his father's roof and he tired of obedience to his father, choosing rather separation. For indeed, sin in its origins is the seeking of distance from God. Sin in its origins is the seeking of distance from God. And isn't this exactly what we see in the human story as recorded in our scriptures? The story that, that tries to help us understand what the fall was. Adam and Eve simply did not want relationship anymore. They did not want to trust God to direct their lives properly. So certain responsibilities of relationship with God no longer fit with their individual desires. Certain responsibilities of relationship no longer fit with their individual desires. Reaching for the apple was not an act of some simply breaking of a law. That's not what that was. It was nothing less than wishing God dead. And the result of that was the end of relationship. So think about it right now in your own lives, where there is strife, where there is division, where there is brokenness. At some level, there is a rejection of the demands of relationship whether it's by you or by the other person or probably more a mixture of both. My wife and I are celebrating 23 of the best years of my life today, but whenever we have our issues, that's all it is. When we're in our issues, one of us or both of us have decided that we don't care about the responsibility of relationship, we just want the privilege of it. That's, that's what the fallenness of humanity looks like. Privilege without responsibility. And, you know, there's been so many incredibly well-written commentaries on postmodern man and what we're seeing in the world today. And that's what it is. Everyone wants privilege. No one wants responsibility. The image of man that we worship as opposed to the image of God. Relationships are ruined when one or both parties want the privilege but not the responsibility. And when that happens, just like the youngest son in our story, we are lost. To use Christian language. We can call ourselves Christians all we want, 
We can evidence that Christianity with all the rule-keeping and doctrinal knowledge we want. But when we reject the demands of relationship, we are lost. Here's the good news. If we are lost, there is a God searching for us. And if we are dead, there is a God raising us back up. The most important verse in the entire parable. I love that verse. And by the way, before we go a little further here, just take note, because this is sort of a preview for everything that's coming. Note the theme of death that is so evident in this story. I don't know if you caught it when Shay was reading it for us this morning, but it mirrors all of Scripture, this story. Okay? The story begins with the death of the father, which we've seen, basically. The son wants him dead, right? And by giving the estate over to the two sons, he effectively dies to his life as he has already known it. So the death of the father. By the middle of the story, the youngest son is dead. He has lost everything, which we're going to see is the pivotal moment. And then finally, in order for there to be a feast, the fatted calf gets killed. By the way, at least one church father, Jerome, understood the calf to be the Christ figure. And the more I study this, the more I tend to agree with that view. But anyway, the point for now, the point for now is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that out of death comes life. If we are dead, we will be raised. If we are lost, we will be found. We will be found. All of scripture tells the story. That's the beautiful story of the Bible. And when the story of the Bible gets twisted to say something else, it's not so beautiful. It's no longer good news. It's something far different. But the good news of this scripture is the dead get raised and the lost get found. It's amazing. God is in the business of raising the dead and finding the lost, even at the cost of his own death. Grace. It's beautiful. And therein is the difference between the youngest son and the father and between the image of God and the image of man. There's the whole difference. God is righteous, we are not. So back to our story. Bailey explains that in the Middle East, a father who received such a request as this son was expected to explode with anger, refuse the request, and drive the boy out of the house with both verbal and physical abuse. That's exactly what would have been expected. But that's exactly not what the father did. Instead, as Bailey goes on, rather than strike the boy across the face for his insolence, the father grants the request. The father is able to extend this costly form of grace because he is willing to endure the agony of rejected love. This agony is the most painful form of suffering known to the human spirit. The greater the love, the greater the pain when that love is not accepted. It is out of our rejection of it is out of rejection of his father's love that the prodigal makes his request. It is out of the father's costly love that he grants that same request. In the process, the father grants the ultimate form of freedom, namely the freedom to reject the offered relationship, the freedom to reject the love offered to him by a compassionate father. I want to encourage us Never miss, or I should say underestimate, the importance of our freedom to choose to love God. Without a choice, it's not real love. It's not real relationship. And that instantly shifts the biblical narrative. 
instantly to something other. Without a choice, it's master-slave or it's king-servant. And those of us that are big Game of Thrones fans know that you have no choice about your king. You just suffer under your king. And those relationships, master-slave, king-servant, may work well, but there's no love there because there's no choice. But I believe we are all given a choice. For the story of the Bible screams love. It screams relationship is at the heart of God. And that is what makes God different than us. That is why the image of God has been so lost in the image of man. And that is why man has insisted on creating God in his image and not God's own image. It's easy to worship ourselves. God is perfectly righteous because of how he meets the demands of relationship he has with us. He started this whole thing. And so when we blew it, in order to be perfectly righteous, he had to fix it. And that's what he did. That's why God is righteous. Not because he's some morally superior being, though his righteousness makes him morally superior, but that's not the point. The point is his incredible, perfect love for us in meeting the demands of relationship. See, it is well within this father's rights in the story to exercise a form of human justice in dealing with a rebellious son that is well within his rights and well within the law. But justice in God's kingdom is righteous. It meets the demands of relationship. God, as depicted in this father, refuses to reject the rebellious even though the rebellious rejected him. Because rejection closes the door on relationship. We have the freedom to reject God, but he, in being perfectly righteous, will never reject us. Isn't that the gospel? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I'm sorry that if it has been changed and it, has, it, it affected my life for years because that central truth to the gospel was shifted on me. And I thought he died for me because I was good. Or because I believed the right thing or accepted. No. He died for me because I was a sinner and I was lost. And he finds the lost. I think we are Christians because God died. And in his death he showed us his love. And in his death, he tells us he wants to be in loving relationship with us. And in his death, he proves he has forgiven all of our rejections. And he is welcoming us home. Better, he is searching for us and bringing us home. That's the image of God. I think that image is evidenced in our lives when we embrace others in the same kind of unconditionally loving relationship so this is what we're going to continue to explore. This God that Christ reveals in mind-blowing ways through this parable. I'm glad you're here today. I hope we'll all be together for most of this series. But here's the two questions I want to leave us with. First, have we opened ourselves to loving relationship with God? 
Not a master-slave relationship, not a king-servant relationship, a loving relationship with God. Have we opened ourselves to that? And second, are we trying to be righteous in our relationship with others? If the answer to either of those is no, perhaps we have made God in our 